Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. And I'm excited today to kick off a brand new series. And as I alluded to uh, last weekend, uh, obviously we finished off a series that, uh, about grace. We asked the question, what is so amazing about this idea of grace? And we culminated in the obviously the Easter weekend. And, you know, we spent, uh, you know, a whole month talking about this. And so if you missed it, um, it, I'll encourage you to go back and have a look at any of our YouTube videos uh, from the previous weeks about or have a listen to the podcast. But I I heard one person recently sum up grace in this way. It's kind of like the feeling of being in love. And when we talk about the grace of God, His, you know, the, the undeserved favor, His unapologetic love towards us, it's similar to the idea of the feeling you get when you're in love with someone. Do those married people remember that feeling? <laughs> Jokes, I know it evolved and it changed. But those early stages where if you've ever seen someone in love, isn't it true? It's, they're a bit crazy. Okay? We, we all make crazy, crazy decisions when we have that feeling of being in love. And it's like you wear rose-colored glasses and you have all your mates saying, dude, you do know, like, she, have you know she does that? Or, you know, you know he's like that. It's like, I, don't, I know they are, but it doesn't matter to me. I, I just love him. I love him. And that's what sometimes the idea of the grace of God could seem like. Like, God, you do know that this is going on. It's almost as if he thinks, he, he chooses to look more at what is right about us than double down on what's wrong about us, okay? And this is the idea of like this feeling of being in love. And if you've ever seen someone do something crazy, for someone they love, you know, sometimes there's a roll of an eye, you know, of course, you know, they're whipped or they're under the thumb, or maybe they're just in love, okay? And you've been there. If you, maybe you've been there before. Maybe you haven't been there. I don't know. Um, and so this is usually the part where I share an antidote or a story about how in love I am with Chloe and how I've done crazy things and all these different love. But I'm going to flip the script today, and she's just exited the building, which isn't according to the script. But I want to share something that she has done arguably, I haven't checked if this was the reason why, but arguably that she was in love with me. So um, if you've been around here for any, you know, any amount of time, you know I harp on far too much about mountains and climbing and hiking and trail running, and I'm not even mad about it, even if you are. But this is a big passion in my life. Um, it's a passion that started after I got married. So Chloe didn't know this is something I was into before she married me. And now she asks, if you were into this before we got married, would I, you know, I don't know. And so, so this is a picture of, we'd been married at this point here, um, maybe 18 months, okay? And this is a picture, if you see the summit there, that is Mount Snowdon in Snowdonia National Park in Wales. I took this picture. And if you look down the bottom left, have you been there? Yeah. Cool spot, right? I'm really warm. Uh, if you see down in the bottom left there, in the pink there, that is my darling wife, Chloe. Now, as much as you probably know, okay, Jono's into this whole idea of climbing. Blah, blah, blah. Chloe's not. <laughs> Chloe's into me, just not climbing. And the backstory for this picture was we were away, um, uh, we were away uh, staying in like these little cabins with some friends um, in Europe and... Uh, and the day before, they'd all gone climbing to the top of, of Mount Snowden, and Chloe came down with this horrible cold. And so, you know, of course, I was more than happy to stay back and look after her. I wasn't. I did it kicking and screaming, and I was on a mood all day to my great shame. I just finished reading Bear Grylls' autobiography of Mud, Sweat, and Tears, and I, he wrote, writes about this mountain. I'm like, we've come all the way to Wales, and I can't even climb it. So I was being a bad husband, but she was sick, you know. 
And uh, the next day, because uh, they all came back, all our friends were like, how was it? And they're like, it was the most amazing day. And I'm just feeling even worse. The next day when we wake up, Chloe's like, let's climb it, just you and me. And I was like, but you, really? Like, you're, you're sick. And I'm thinking, yes. She's like, let's do it. And I was like, really? She's cool. Like, you, we're here and you really want to do it. I'll, I'm gonna. And we booked her in for like a, a spa treatment that day as well. And she goes, I'm just not going to go. Let's go climb your mountain. And so my wife, feeling sick, um, cancelled a day spa treatment thing all because allegedly she loves me and so that's where she found herself on that cold winter's day in Wales. But she's not here to, there's no point clapping because she's not here. So, you know, uh, my point is, <laughs> my point is, you know, we do, <laughs> thanks Tess, we do crazy things, you know, for love, right? We do things you wouldn't choose, you know, normally do. But if you love someone, you know, you do it for the love of them. And this is, this is the whole idea behind what we celebrate at Easter time with the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. All through the New Testament, what they keep repeating is God did it because He loved us. There was not no reason for it. God gave His life for us and He was risen again. He was demonstrating His love for us. Demonstrating. It wasn't just in word or written or memory or in motive or in heart. It was demonstrated in action. And the reason I want to highlight that and, and, and I guess lead into this series about it is because when we look at the events that, again, we talked about all last month and in this series now, we're going to kind of do what happened after the events of Easter. What difference did it make? A lot of people talk about, well, Christianity kind of began, it, it began with the belief or it began with the Bible. I actually didn't, and we touched on this. It began with an event. It was an event that took place, and Christianity was birthed not because Jesus died. Many people had died before. Many people had died for what they believed in. Many religious people had died. Christianity didn't start with a death. Christianity started with a resurrection. And why? Because resurrections don't happen. This is why it was such a big deal. When people even today, and if you're someone who's not normally in church, and maybe you've got some questions, I hope you do, or maybe skeptical about this idea. It's like, really, he came back from the dead? Yeah, that's why it's such a big deal. If it happened every day, you know, we wouldn't be talking about it. But it was so radical and people saw a man that they knew and lived with. They saw him crucified. They saw his body torn apart. They saw him put in a grave. And then they saw him walking around alive again. I don't care who you are. You could be the biggest skeptic. But when you see something like that, it is not a matter of belief. It's not a matter of someone told me so. It's a matter of, I saw it. Right? And so that's what happened. It started with an event. The belief part kicked in after that. It wasn't the event that they believed in. It wasn't a matter of belief. It was a matter of fact. The belief part came in what they believed the event meant. The belief was that because of Jesus' death, my sins are now forgiven. That's what I believe now because that's what Jesus said. And it's also the belief that His resurrection means all of those who put their trust in Jesus will experience a resurrection as well, right? This is where the belief part came in. Started with an event and then the belief part kicked in about what we believe that event means. And then that belief leads to then this next huge part of it, which is what this series is about, a transformation in people's lives. Started with an event that happened, and then there, out of that is the belief of what we think that event, what Jesus told us that event would mean. And then based out of that belief and what the event meant, our lives subsequently are transformed. And this is what we see from the very beginning with the first followers of Jesus. It wasn't what they believed that caused them to stand out. And this is so important to understand, okay? And for those of you that are Jesus followers, you have to understand it. It's not what you believe that stands out the most. It's how what you believe impacts how you behave. 
that stands out. Because everyone's got a belief in something. I don't know why I use that expression, something, but there you go. Everyone believes in something. And back in the early days, when this Christianity started, it wasn't their belief that necessarily stood out amongst the crowd. People had a whole lot of different beliefs. You're in the Roman Empire with all of its Roman gods, which were kind of evolution of the Greek gods, and you had a pantheon of religious beliefs. There were so many different beliefs out there, but it's how what they believed in caused their behavior to be shaped a certain way that made them stand out. And that's when people go, what is it that you believe? They saw how they lived. They saw what they did. And then the question was, what do you believe? Because obviously what you believed has shaped how you behaved. They were transformed. Something was different about their life. You know, some people will read a Bible, but for 99% of people, they'll read you. And before any credibility and before any debate and before any, and there's a whole weight of evidence around the validity of the resurrection of Jesus. And it's important to talk about that stuff. And that's important for giving great grounding to why we believe that's all important. But in turn, if you're a Christian in the room, if you're a Jesus follower here, the most important thing isn't how you argue with someone about what you believe. It's what does your life say? And so this series... It's always, as a, you know, as your pastor, it can be a little, like I'm conscious that it's going to be a little, um, it's going to perhaps be confronting in some ways. And I don't do this because I want to do it. I do it because it matters. I do it because we can't avoid it. And I do it because I love you. And if what we believe is true, and if what we believe should make any difference, it will result in the transformation of our lives. Because if it doesn't, why would we do it? If it's just a series of religious boxes and steps we go through to tick off, there's a whole lot of better things you and I could be doing with our lives and ticking religious boxes. Jesus promised that through trust in his name, your life would be different. And this was the message from the beginning. So what I want to read is a story. We're going to be doing this every week over the next four weeks as we look at what happened after the resurrection of Jesus. Luke, who wrote the gospel account of Luke, of, of Jesus' life, Luke was a doctor. And so he went and gave an orderly account to a Roman leader who was like, he heard about this belief and he, he wanted to know more about the story of Christianity. Um, um, both the gospel accounts in Matthew and, and what Mark wrote had been written. And so Luke wanted to do something different. So he went and interviewed all these eyewitnesses and he writes Luke. And the, um, the New Testament book of Acts is kind of like part two. It's what happened after the resurrection. And we read this just a couple of chapters in about how now the church started growing. The followers of Jesus started growing. Here's what it says. In Acts chapter four, it says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, right? That this is what they kept bearing witness to. In fact, those who were deemed apostles were those who saw Jesus dead, sorry, saw Jesus alive and died and resurrected. That's how kind of you qualified to be an apostle. So they, of course, they testified about what they saw is the resurrection. Goes on. So God's grace was, and this is what we spent or last series talking about the crazy God, it was so powerfully at work in them that this is what it resulted in, that there were no needy persons among them. Think of this for a minute. The evidence or the outworking of what was happening in them, right? God's grace was working in them. This is what was recorded. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Think of the enormity of what this is saying. 
that as a direct result of what they believe and what was happening in them through God's grace, right from the beginning, one of the outward expressions of God's grace was generosity. It was generosity. Don't miss this. And, and if you've been in church circles a long time, this word's thrown around when we talked about it earlier. We talk about it all the time. The reason is this is like fundamental to the outworking of what has happened inside of us because of the grace of God. It seems like generosity is the natural overflow of God's grace working in our life. And so for those who were there at the beginning, the grace of God was working in them. Generosity was flowing out. All of a sudden, they, care, they started caring that people in need would be ministered to, right? It wasn't just, we need to preach this message. It was like, well, what do we do? We need to make sure people with needs are ministered to. We want to realize that our possessions now have a purpose. They're realizing that they could attach their lives to a mission. And as the story goes on, it talks about how they would have property and those with, with great wealth, the great assets would, would sell them with the profits. They would come and bring them and they would make sure it distributed to people who had need. They were being generous with their wealth. They were being generous with their possessions. They were being generous with their finances. It seemed to be the natural reaction to what God was doing in their life. They saw their work as worship. They saw their business as mission. And listen, I want to say, if you, if, for those of you, in fact, most of us, when we talk in terms of mission and ministry, as much as we saw, you know, heard an incredible story about a mission trip where a whole bunch of young adults, teenagers went out west and did something on a trip. Our mission is every day, is our work environments, is our neighborhoods, literally. And, and one of the incredible things about being a follower of Jesus, it means that your work doesn't just have to be a mundane thing. You can attach your work to mission. And that's what happened right at the beginning. People saw their possessions and their finances the reasons we work for to attain these things, that you can attach them to a mission. This is the hallmark of the Christians right from the beginning. And let's go to the next slide. I want to double down on this verse. It said that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. In other words, this is what grace does, right? Grace, it changes what we value. Grace changes how we live. It works inside of us where it changes what we want to pursue in life, what we end up esteeming highly. In other words, grace changes us. Where grace works the most is in us. How does it change us or what does it change us to be like? Well, arguably, the role of grace is to make us more like Jesus, to make us like Christ. Yes, grace accepts us as we are, but grace is also the power of God to transform us into something that we're not yet. And God's grace was working in them and was changing them so much that it caused them to be generous to the world around them. They saw needs, they saw opportunity, they saw people who were destitute. And listen, you know, we live in this super altruistic society where even governments budget generosity. This wasn't a thing back in the first century. Generosity was a uniquely Christian idea. For there to be organized generosity, not just someone's own personal conviction, but groups of people gathered together in base of what they believe to be a blessing to their society. Listen, the Roman government did not have some part of their budget to send aid to a foreign nation for those who are in famine, right? It took from foreign nations to stop famines in their own city, right? This was a new idea. This whole idea of generosity, of caring for the poor, of caring for the needy was a natural overflow of the introduction of God's grace into the world 
around us. Generosity was one of the signs of God working in their life. And generosity, I'm convinced, and this is what we're going to talk about over these next four weeks. And this is so important for our lives. Generosity is one of the signs that God is working in us. And why is that? Because generosity is the overflow of the work of grace in us. This is what Luke recorded. It says, listen, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. They were like, instead of it's just been about me and what I can hoard and what I can get, it's like, what can I give? Like if God has given me so much, this is what His grace is, how can I not let that overflow out of my life? It's amazing that our actions, what we do, are the primary way that we show not only what we believe, but what we love. Our actions are the primary way that demonstrates not only what we believe, but what we love, or rather, who we love. And God demonstrated His love through giving His life. And as Jesus' followers, we get to demonstrate not only our love for God, but our love for the thing that He loves, humanity, in the same way. Right? But from the negative side of this, our actions can also show another story. And if our actions can show what we love in a positive way, but maybe our actions can also show what we love that maybe isn't so helpful. And after this event took place, we're just reading at the end of Acts chapter 4 about all the work that was happening, people bringing their property, people selling assets, people bringing their finances and going, man, we have got to meet a need. God has met so much need in my life. How can I now be generous to other people's lives? To explain how not everyone was on board with this or what was happening, in the very next verse, the story continues and we hear about another character. Is what it says. A man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So they see everyone selling their properties and the people who are wealthy, people who are rich going, man, I've like five properties. I can only live on one. How about I sell one and like help others who have no housing, right? This was the idea that was going on. People were like, how can I be generous with what I've got? So like, we will, we'll do that too. So they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, okay? But he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And so you don't miss what's happening here is everyone was saying, listen, here's all the money I made and I'm giving it all away. He's like saying, I made all this money. And he's saying to his wife, listen, everyone looks really good doing that. Why don't we do it? Let's just keep some of it back. We don't have to give it all. We don't tell him that. Like, yes, here's all the money we made from the sale of our property. Give it away so we can be looking as good as everyone else, right? And his wife's like, yeah, great idea. We not only get the kudos for being generous, we actually don't have to give it all that we said we'd give. This is great. Okay, next verse. It says, then Peter said, wow, I didn't do capitals on Peter. Sorry for everyone who cares about that. Um, Then Peter said, (laughs) Ananias, how is it that Satan, oh, Satan gets a capital, you know. (laughs) Anyway, great one, Jono. Why is it Satan is so filled? Look at this. Filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you receive for the land. So he called him out. You're lying. You're lying, okay? Like, you've just come and said, here's all, everything I made. Why don't you just tell us the truth? Why don't you go, look, I, like, here's, here's some. We would have been like, awesome, man. Thank you. You didn't have to lie about it. Something has gone wrong. And he used this strong language, Satan. 
had filled your heart. I'd have to say, this isn't a God thing, right? This isn't godly. This isn't like Christ. This is the opposite of what Christ is like. And you're lying. You're flexing. Why? Where does this come from? What has happened inside of you, right? Because where does grace work? In us. It's like something else is working in you, Ananias, and it ain't grace, right? You're here lying to everyone. Um, Next verse, it says, Peter continues, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Meaning, listen, no one forced you to do this. It's yours. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? He's saying, listen, there is no rule just because you're a Jesus follower. It doesn't mean you have to do this. Other people had the means to give it all, could give it all. But listen, if you're tight, no one's telling you to give more than you're capable of, right? You don't have to go and deceive people and lie about it. He says, is that your disposal? He goes, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to just human beings, but you've lied to God. Okay, strong word from the Apostle Peter right now. This is massive. But I want to talk about for a moment, what was Ananias' sin? Why, why was this such a, a horrible move that he did in this moment? Listen, it wasn't that he didn't give enough, right? Because there is no give enough. There's no rule around it. Oh, I haven't given enough. No, that wasn't the thing. There was no benchmark. You had to give it this much and this amount. But then he didn't give enough. Or he wasn't, his sin wasn't that he gave too much, you know, that he was being unwise. Like, dude, you shouldn't really give that much. Like, you've got to feed your family. You know, you've got, you got responsibilities. That wasn't what his, his sin was. His problem was he was using his wealth to posture himself in front of others. He was using his wealth to make himself appear righteous in front of others, right? It was like a status thing. And he was lying about it. In other words, he really didn't care about helping people. He cared about Impressing them. Big difference. Okay. Now, same thing. He's giving like everyone else. He's giving. Right. And surely Peter being like, you know what? I'll take it. I don't care if your motive's wrong. Like, let the guy give it. You know, if he wants to flex himself, good on you. But no, no. Peter's like, this is wrong. Like, the idea of faith in Jesus isn't to twist people's arms, to be guilted into giving and to feel like I have this religious obligation to give. Like, that's not the idea behind it. It's supposed to be an overflow of you being caught up in the grace of God. You realizing that everything you have is a gift from God and that it is an honor to give. It is worship to give. It is a delight to give. It's not a duty. It's not an obligation. I don't do it begrudgingly. Peter's saying you have missed the whole thing. This isn't about looking good in front of people. This isn't about trying to be more generous than other people, right? This is about what's happening in you. And for Ananias and Sapphira, their motive wasn't helping people. Their motive was being impressive. It's standing up in front of others, right? In other words, he loved the wrong thing. He gave for the love of people's praise rather than for the love of people. Huge difference. In other words, his generosity wasn't from an overflow of grace, but it was from the dead end of his pride. And the remarkable thing is, isn't this true even in our lives, that this is what our handling of wealth can do. Our handling of wealth often reveals what is in our hearts. It reveals it. It exposes it. It shines a light onto it. Now, when I, ref- when I use the term wealth, and we're going to look at this from a New Testament perspective, wealth is to me like money, your possessions, right? all that idea. It's not just kind of a one-dimensional thing. Okay, we're going to look at what Jesus taught about in just a second, but I want to, want to just touch on this for a moment to under- so we understand this, that money and wealth, it's not the problem. And wealth is not also the solution. It just helps to reveal it. Okay, Wealth is an inanimate object. Okay? 
neither here nor there. What makes it either helpful or harmful or reveals what's good or not so good inside of us is what we do with it. Similar to the idea of fire, okay? This is how I've heard it being explained this way. Fire, again, it has no moral about it. It doesn't have a moral compass. But if you've ever experienced fire in a positive way, you know, it's a good thing. Um, but then if you've ever experienced in a harmful way, it can burn things down and hurt people, okay? So I'm not looking at anyone in particular on the front row to my right. <laughs> so uh, about maybe three years ago, four years ago, uh, my family were at Mount Hotham, another mountain snow story. And if you've ever been in the snow, right, nothing better than coming back and um, just write Sue and Cameron, same thing, coming home to like a nice warm hearth, like a fire, you know, blazing away, like it's, it's nice. But, you know, fire put in its rightful position in a home is helpful. That's why there's a fireplace. As long as fire is kept where it belongs and within its boundaries, everyone is safe, everyone is warm, everyone's happy. When fire is not in its proper place, everyone's lives are in danger. We experienced this as a family when my beloved father went to light the fire in the hired um, apartment that we're all staying in. The fire did not stay in the fireplace. The fire decided to explode out of it and climb up the walls and onto the roof. Um, Needless to say, that was an exciting time on the family (laughs) snow trip, right? We survived, got the money back. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Good job. Um, So, but I remember seeing that go, that's interesting because, because, and we're going to look at this over the next over the next few weeks as well. Like, how, what what parameters and what boundaries and what like how, how do we put a finance in its right place so it doesn't get out of control, doesn't cause harm, right? And if you've ever experienced money being out of control in your life, hasn't it? It can cause harm. It's one of the biggest impediments of a healthy and life-giving marriage. One of the biggest causes for relationship breaks up is around finances. It's one of the biggest causes of anxiety in our lives. Like money mishandled, right, can cause a lot of harm, but money handled correctly can cause a lot of good to happen. And so in the same way, though, our handling of it, what we do with it at its core reveals what's going on in here. And this is exactly what Jesus warns us about. Now, Luke, again, who we're reading, who wrote Acts, we're going to fast forward, to, rewind, sorry, to his first account. He's the Gospel of Luke, where he's talking about what Jesus, we wrote about what Jesus taught, what Jesus did. He records one instance where Jesus teaches on this very subject. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. You, you're tracking, right? Everyone understands that. And whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Next slide. So if you have not been trustworthy, here's, you've got to track with this. If you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, right, our possessions, money, who will trust you with true riches? Now, I want you to notice something here. Jesus drew a distinction between worldly wealth and true riches. As if to say that they're not the same thing. Jesus is suggesting that even that the richest people aren't necessarily those who have the most wealth. And you already know that, don't you, right? You can be one of the wealthiest people you know, and you might not be rich in terms of finances and assets, okay? However, what Jesus was warning here, and this is important for us to understand, notice he's talking about a handling of worldly wealth, and can you be trusted? He's saying this, it is our handling of worldly wealth that sets a tone for how we handle everything 
else. He's saying if you can be trusted with something as small as worldly wealth, literally he's saying this isn't the most, this is like the smallest thing. It's not even true riches. It's worldly wealth. It's not the richest thing in your life. He's like, but it is the testing ground if you can be trusted with what really matters. In other words, he's saying how you handle worldly wealth, it will set a tone for how you handle everything else. This is what Jesus is warning here. He's saying, be careful how you handle what you have in your hands. Be careful how you're handling this because how you handle it will set a tone for every other commitment and everything else you're part of and whether or not you can be trusted with what is truly rich. And then he elaborates in the next verse and says this. He says, no one... No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and you'll love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, isn't this an interesting statement that Jesus makes? Because he pitches what he would argue is our two highest loves or two highest masters. And if I was writing this, if I was Jesus, I'd say, well, if you're going to pitch something against God, wouldn't it be God versus, you know, as we read earlier, Satan, God versus the devil, or good versus evil? Jesus, who I think knows what's up, says, well, hey, it's either God or money. That these are the two, two competing commitments for our lives. And these are the two things that we can choose to serve or not, right? And he uses this term serve, which I find interesting. You cannot serve it's this idea that denotes giving loyalty to or worshiping or pursuing. And he's saying you're going to love one and he uses a strong term. He says you'll hate the other. You can only have one master. In other words, what we love will determine what we hate. What we pursue will determine what we're fleeing. What we say yes to determines what we say no to. That's what a good budget does, right? You're saying yes to something. So you already have said no to a million other things because you've said yes to something. What we hold tight to will determine what we hold loosely in our life. And so the point is this, that Jesus is trying to get across. If we determine then that we're going to serve God first, and if you're someone who would not be a believer in God or not a follower of Jesus, and you're curious about this, I would employ you, man, this is stuff that is going to help your life to no end. When you choose to put the Jesus way first, it results not just in this like, I feel like different inside. It changes how you will live your life, okay? Because we all serve something. And Jesus is saying, listen, money, bad master. Great servant, bad master. Only God can handle that place of number one in our lives. And so when God takes the place of number one in our life, if our belief in God puts Him first and we choose to serve Him, what it does is it shapes what we do first with our wealth. And the reason that's important is this. What we do first with our wealth determines the position of everything else in our life. You've got to catch this. If we trust Jesus with our life, right, we put Him first, that then determines what we do first with our wealth. And what we do first with our wealth determines the position of everything else in our life. Okay, for example, if you choose first with your wealth to be generous with it, right, before we spend and we splurge and we hoard, Right Before we pay, before we get into debt, if we choose first, then I'm going to be generous. And this is what happened right from the beginning. I want to be generous first, okay? The first thing I do with what I get is I want to give a portion of it. What you're doing is you're choosing to place value on what Jesus placed value on. When we choose before we, again, go spending and getting into debt and, and, and hoarding, if we choose to be wise and we plan and we save, what you're doing there is you're valuing a life beyond your own. You're valuing the generations beyond you. You're saying, I want to make sure 
I save wisely so I can be a blessing to the next generation that comes after me, right? So this is important, what we choose to do first with our wealth. And, we, and if you've been around here any amount of time, you know we often, often teach on a simple model around how this looks from a biblical perspective. And often when we look at our finance, particularly if we're not maybe following what Jesus encourages us to do here, this is what our, I guess, our finance can look like, right? Number one, we, with everything we get, all of our wealth, we live first. As in, you know, we pay our bills, we buy our groceries, we pay for entertainment, we go for travel to, you know, Dolby, wherever people are traveling these days now. And so, so we live, we live, we spend it all. We spend, spend, we live, we live our lives. And then if by some chance, by some miracle there's anything left over, then we'll save, we'll put some aside. And then every now and again, someone will come along and twist our arms and do some series about, for the love of or something fancy pantsy, to twist my arm and guilt me into giving and then finally I'll give something, right? This is often how, or someone's at the front of coals trying to get you to give towards a great cause and then because you feel awkward saying no, you give something, right? We're guilted into giving. But what the Jesus way does, it inverts this, okay? And what we do first with our wealth is this. You give first. So you get a percentage, a portion, and the biblical model that is generated over and over again is referred to as the tithe. It speaks of a tenth. So this isn't a law. This is a principle, okay? It's this idea of putting a tenth aside of everything you get and say, before uh, my bills are asking for me, before my entertainment's asking for me, before my fears are, before I'm worried everywhere else, I want to prioritize first in my life that I'm a generous person. I'm not a fearful person. I'm not a hoarder. Master, money is not my master. God is my master. So I'm going to value what God values, which is generosity. I'm going to put that first in my finance, right? And so what I want to encourage you to do, if, you're, if you've never engaged in that before, start with the percentage. I don't mind what it is. If it's 0.5%, you go for it. And you just practice that discipline of giving first. Because what you're doing is then, right, by choosing what to do first with your finance to be generous with it, is you're no longer outsourcing your joy by something that is outside of your control. Because usually if we try to spend first before we give, we're thinking our joy comes from what we get. If I spend, I'll get. If I spend, I'll get, then I'll get joy. But what you're doing is you can't always determine what you get in life. And so you've outsourced your joy. But when you determine, like Jesus, to say, it's better for me to give than to get. So I want to prioritize giving first. You get joy no matter how much you get because you give first. And so you haven't outsourced your joy. Let me t- I'm telling you, right, if you, if you haven't discovered the joy and the liberality that comes from being generous, man, there is an exciting life waiting for you. And it's not determined on how much you earn or how much you get or how much you have, right? It, right, it determines on what you put first in your life. And you don't even have to be a believer in Jesus to do this. It is one of the most life-changing principles you can ever do. Determine that your money is not your master, it is your servant that God's way is your master, right? Give first, save second, and then learn to live on the rest. And it's amazing how you will find that instead of wasting money on things that you didn't need, you've already prioritized that money to give away first. And so if you have none left, you have none left to waste. You've already prioritized giving, you've already saved for the next generation in your future, and you're still able to live. It works, okay? Anyway, this is what Jesus encourages. Now, you're sitting there, some of you going, yeah, this is good. I'm into this because it's what I do. Thank you for reminding me of why I do this. Some of you are like, I'm sometimes into that and sometimes not. And others of you are sitting there going, really though? Well, you're not alone because those who were listening to Jesus were thinking the same thing. In fact, there's one particular group who we would think would know better. They were known as the Pharisees. They were like the religious elite. They were there listening. And here's how they responded. 
The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Sneering at him. In other words, Jesus' teaching on this, this is remarkable to think, it exposed what they loved most. You would think these guys, and the Pharisees, if you're not familiar with kind of the Bible, the New Testament, these guys are a common story around Jesus. They were big critics of Jesus. Um, they weren't all bad. In fact, arguably, Jesus could have been one himself. It was like a very strict religious order who were a ruling class in ancient Israel. So these guys like arguably loved God, right? They devoted their whole life to loving God. But their actions, as recorded in the New Testament here, spoke something different. So what they really loved wasn't God first. Because if they really loved God first, they'd be applauding everything Jesus taught. They'd be like, you are spot on. But the Pharisees who loved money, they were sneering at Jesus. And it brings up an important point for us, that our attitude towards wealth shines a light on what we love most. And so when you hear words generosity, <laughs> and you hear words like giving, well, feelings come up inside of your heart. You know, you, do they make you feel anxious? Do they make you feel worried? Do they make you feel jealous? Do you sneer at this? Is this something you're like, I don't want any, any part of? When you hear these words, what attitude do you feel comes inside of your life? Because it will shine a light. Now you might go, man, I don't, I don't love money first. But then it's interesting when this is taught, the reaction that happens in us, right? Where grace works. That's why it has to work in us because it's competing with another master, right? And so when we hear this stuff, it's like, am I being, do I, what do I put first? Where, what position does wealth have in my life? Is it first? And if you find yourself like resisting the idea of generosity, not as a one-off act, but as primary in how you deal with your finances, it often reveals not only our loves, it also shines a light on our fears, Right? Are you worried? Like some of you, I would love to give, but I'm worried that I won't have enough. Or I'd love to be generous, but I love security more. Or, you know, I'd love to be generous, but I love to be applauded more. And I want this more, and I want that more. You know, like, like I get super challenged when I hear some people that some of the finance decisions they make, and they like put these great priorities of generosity and, and investing into the future of their kids and their grandkids and giving into the next generation. And I'll see all this and like, and then I see them like maybe driving something or living somewhere. I'm like, ah, oh, you, I thought you would. And like, well, why do I need that? Like, it's not my value. I don't place high value on this. It's important. It's just not first. I'm like, that's amazing. Like, I get super challenged when I meet people who generosity is an overflow of what they believe, right? And so I'm conscious that when we teach on this, and if you're sitting here and going, I'm not going to come back until this series is over. <laughs> Listen, I want to invite you back. Give it a shot. Give the Jesus way a chance. Because if your attitude to wealth is shining a part that you're not happy with, well, you're in good company because the grace of God works in our lives. And if you allow the grace of God to work in you, you will find what you love most begins to change. And maybe, maybe your actions just don't line up with what you love most. You can change that, do you know? And maybe, maybe this is a series where you can begin changing that. And listen, in response to this attitude, this is super interesting. These Pharisees were sneering at Jesus. Jesus replies to them, and this is how we'll finish. Jesus said to them, listen, 
You are the ones who justify, here's the point, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. Is this not the issue that we saw right at the beginning with Ananias and Sapphira? They came and brought their giving. They weren't doing it because they cared about people. They cared about impressing people. They cared about how they looked, in Jesus' words, in the eyes of others. Right? I want you to think about this. How often have you found yourself in a bad financial position because you cared about how you looked in the eyes of others? I'm going to talk about this more in the weeks to come, and I'm not going to harp on about it. I'm going to double down on it because this is important. People are dying, and as in like their joy is being killed, their hope is being killed because they care so much about how they look in the eyes of others. They've got to have the latest thing. They've got to look the next thing. They've got to, you've got to stop that. The Jesus way sets you free from being under the curse of trying to look good in the eyes of others. And it's not always extravagant. It's sometimes just subtle. Like maybe you could just get the upgrade. Maybe. Now, again, I'm not criticizing any of that, right? But if it's in the absence of, of, of wealth being your servant, rather than your master, and, it's, and that attitude, how you look in the eyes of others, starts to lead you, then you've got a problem. You've got a problem of the heart. Because isn't it true, we can often leverage finances to do one of good things. We can leverage our wealth to either look good or to do good. And I want to encourage you, that here's the thing, you can look good to people, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing any good. You can be doing good, and sometimes doing good can actually look good. So if you want a guarantee of both, Go with doing good first. You might end up looking good, okay, if you care about that. So it goes on. We can go to the next slide. So Jesus said, right, you're the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of others, but God knows your, your hearts. Why does Jesus talk about money? Because he cares about your heart. Why do we do a series about for the love of because I care about what's happening in you. Because that's the area that the Holy Spirit does His best work. It's not to guilt us. It's not to twist our arm. It's not to go, oh, I better guilt give. It's not, it's not, it's not. He understands, and Jesus knew it. There's going to be one master. And Jesus said it's either God or money. And we've seen the effects of when money rules in the world, don't we? Think of the poverty in the world. Think of the inequality in the world, the social injustice in the world. And I'm telling you, laws won't change that. People guilting you to giving won't change that. The Holy Spirit will change that in you. And you don't have to wait for someone else to budget it or a government to tell you where your money should go. You can have a change of heart. And that's where the Holy Spirit works. So let me finish with this question today. What does your current relationship with wealth say about what you love most? In your life right now, what does your current relationship with wealth say about what you love most? And... If you don't like the answer to this, I want to invite you back to next week. Because if you're like, hang on a second, if this is true, if Jesus was true, then technically what I love most isn't what I want to love most. I want to be like God. I don't even believe in God, but I want to be like Him. Right? Because we do crazy things for the love of what matters most to us. Listen, next week, we're going to learn how, or at least I'm going to attempt to teach us how we can trust God's ways when it comes to wealth. You can trust it, and this whole area of generosity, and probably tapped into it today, requires trust, or the Christian word for that is faith. It's a big deal. 
We're going to talk about why we can trust God's ways next week. Before we do, love to pray with you as we wrestle with this question this morning. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in our hearts. For those of us sitting here today, those of us watching along online, help us, Holy Spirit, to see clearly in this. There's just, there just seems to be so much uh, mess around this, so much distortion, there's so many different messages. God, you know how much marketing we have to dig through. You know, even in our own lives, we care so much about what people think. We need your help, God. Like, and I pray for those here this morning that maybe are drowning in this area of wealth and finance. It is a source of discouragement or maybe a source of distress in their life. I'm praying today that there'd be a glimmer of hope inside of them, that you'd begin to shine a light in their life about how much you are for them and how much things can change. And Lord, for those here today that are walking in this way and have been generous, have been giving, Lord, I pray for encouragement around them. I thank you that nothing they ever do for you will ever be in vain. And Lord, may we as a community continue to embody what embodied those who were there at the beginning, that we would, as an overflow of your grace, would exemplify the example seen in Jesus and be generous to the world around us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.